Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative conditions are becoming one of the leading global health threats. As the human population ages, the prognosis is that Alzheimer's will become a worldwide pandemic if effective prevention and reversal are not implemented. And here's the kicker. Conventional medical opinion says that Alzheimer's can't be prevented, is untreatable and progressive, and most patients do not survive beyond 3 to 11 years after diagnosis. My guest today, however, says that Alzheimer's is not just preventable, but reversible. Dr. Dale Bredesen is an internationally recognized expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases. He has researched neurodegeneration for three decades and has published 230 peer-reviewed papers and four books over his career. In those 30 years, he has developed a different opinion, comparing Alzheimer's disease as a modern-day equivalent to polio. He says that while it is ubiquitous now, it should be a rare disease and become a disease of the past. Dr. Bredesen also says that the buildup of amyloid plaque is not the cause for Alzheimer's, but a symptom of the true underlying issues. And those issues are based on a variety of complex factors making Alzheimer's not a single condition, but a host of conditions caused by a variety of insults. This is why Dr. Bredesen believes that traditional medicine, which is focused on removing the amyloid plaque, has very little benefit until the underlying issues have been addressed. And rather than proposing a single treatment, Dr. Bredesen has created a multi-pronged program that has been successful in reversing Alzheimer's. Dr. Bredesen earned his MD from Duke University Medical Center and served as chief resident in neurology at the University of California, San Francisco, before joining Nobel laureate Stanley Prusiner's laboratory at UCSF as an NIH postdoctoral fellow. He held faculty positions at UCSF, UCLA, and the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Bredesen also directed the program on aging at the Burnham Institute before joining the Buck Institute in 1998 as founding president and CEO. Dr. Bredesen is also a prodigious innovator in medicine with over 30 patents to his name, and he put much of his findings and research into his internationally best-selling books, The End of Alzheimer's and The End of Alzheimer's Program, where he shares hands-on information with regards to what each of us can do today to keep our brains functioning optimally, as well as what can be done for patients with existing Alzheimer's dementia. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting-edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Thank you so much for being on the Superhumanized podcast today, Dale. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much, Ariana, for having me. I appreciate it. Well, you know, I'm so excited to talk to you about brain health and healthy brain aging. That's always been on top of my list for my own health regimen. And I also think it's very, very important that um, as many people as possible make that a priority. For myself, as a biohacker, I'm looking into not only fixing and reversing issues, but to actually preventing them before they arise in the first place. And I really want to delve into with you how brain health and prevention relate to cognitive decline and Alzheimer's in particular. Um, so as a neuroscientist, you have researched neurodegeneration for three decades, and you've published 230 peer-reviewed papers and four books over your career, and your best-selling book, The End of Alzheimer's, has been translated in over 32 languages, I think, yeah. and your follow-up, The 
end of Alzheimer's program in which you share your protocol, uh, how to enhance cognition and reverse decline is equally acclaimed and widely read. And I'd like to start with you today with your take on what Alzheimer's is and also what it is not. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it fits very well with the whole idea of superhumanized because it turns out very interestingly, the same things that are preventive for cognitive decline are also supportive for enhanced cognition. And I actually wrote about that in the, in the new book that's coming out in a few months, which is called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. So in fact, you can continue, just as you were talking about earlier, you know, to improve your brain and reduce the likelihood. You know, the truth is Alzheimer's disease should be a rare disease. And yet it is now the third leading cause of death in the United States. This was shown a few years ago by Professor Christine Yaffe from UC San Francisco. So incredibly common. And we absolutely should all be on protocols for prevention. So we recommend that everyone, if you haven't done it by the age of 45, then certainly when you get to the age of 45, think about getting what we would call a cognoscopy. So we all know when we get to 50, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to get a colonoscopy. It's great because it makes sure that you're not gonna die from colorectal cancer. You can pick these things up very early. With Alzheimer's, same idea. So many people have cognitive decline. And even those who don't have a, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's can often have suboptimal cognition for many years. And we'll find out that, hey, what we're thinking is normal cognition can actually be much better. So we recommend that people get a cognoscopy. You find out, and it's pretty easy to do. You can actually do it now online mycognoscopy.com, you want to know a series of blood tests. You know, you want to know where you stand with systemic inflammation. You want to know where you stand with your various hormones, growth factors, nutrients. You want to know where you stand with exposure to toxins. You want to know where you stand with your glycotoxicity. And you know, there are 80 million Americans who have insulin resistance very common. And it's a common contributor to cognitive decline, both Alzheimer's and things that are not necessarily Alzheimer's, but are just suboptimal cognition. So all of these things are helpful to know, and you can get them tested on the cognoscopy. You get the blood tests. Secondly, you want to have a simple online cognitive assessment. So how is your processing speed? How is your memory? How is your executive function? Some basics like that. And then the third piece is optional. If you have no symptoms and you're doing well and you're scoring well, you don't need to have an MRI. But if you already have symptoms, if you already have some problems, having some problems, it's a good idea have an MRI with volumetrics so that now you're going to be measuring the size of your hippocampal volume there. And you're going to be looking at your frontal lobes, your parietal lobes and things because temporal lobes and hippocampus within the temporal lobes are the things that are undergoing atrophy as you're developing Alzheimer's disease. So pretty straightforward to get those things. And I have to say, it's much, if you've ever had a colonoscopy, it's much more pleasant to have a cognoscopy than it is to have a colonoscopy. I was just about uh, to ask that. It's good to know. Uh, so the, uh, the listeners, please do not hesitate to get a cognoscopy. And as you stated, it's very, very important to do this, to look at some of our biomarkers um, early on, because Alzheimer's is not a disease you get all of a sudden in your 60s or 70s. Uh, you write about this also extensively. It's something, the onset of it actually happens much, much earlier, often in our 40s. And this is also why you recommend actually from age 45 on to go and get this cognoscopy. This is such a good point because um, we've had people, and I'll just give you one example, a woman who came who said, you know, Alzheimer's runs in my family. We've had a number of people have it. She said, I think I'm doing fairly well. Um, she was only in her late 40s, and she said, I think I'm doing well, but I just want to get on prevention to make sure I don't have problems. Well, when we did her MOCA score, and MOCA is Montreal Cognitive Assessment, it's about a 12-minute test, easy to do, and scores go from zero, which is end-stage Alzheimer's, up to 30, which is, uh, which is perfect. And, you know, most of us should score 28, 29, or 30, and it tests your memory, and it tests your executive function, and a few other things. Um, nice, you know, calculation, things like that. And so she took hers and scored a 23, 
Well, that tells you she had very significant MCI, which is the precursor. She didn't realize how bad things were. And by the way, she went on the program that we developed and she now scores 30 every time. So she's doing great. So it was fortunate that she got started early. And just as you indicated, this is a subtle reaper. That's the problem. This sneaks up on you. And, you know, there's, there's an old joke about this because so many people uh, tell me, well, you know, my husband or my wife, the, the spouse isn't that great either. This is just normal aging. So there's an old joke about the, you know, the husband who says to his wife, you know, I'm not so sure about your memory. I'm a little concerned. I want to give you a test just to see if you're okay. Would you go out in the kitchen and make, you know, two eggs over easy, three strips of bacon, uh, some black coffee um, and some hash browns, and then see if you can bring that back out. And she says, oh, that's easy. I've been doing that for years. I can do that. She goes in there and he hears the pots and pans banging around and everything. And then 15 minutes later, she comes out and she's got a parfait glass with a hot fudge sundae there. And he looks at her and he says, hey, you forgot the cherry. So he's just as bad as she is. They're both having memory problems. But because of that, they're saying, oh, you know, it's just aging. No, people need to understand, as, you know, as we're aging, we should stay sharp. Everyone knows people who are sharp at 90, 95 years old. So if something is not quite right, there is some reason. You may have some insulin resistance. You may have some a reduction in specific hormones or trophic factors or nutrients. And so optimizing those things is really critical. And I do have a chapter in the new book that is specifically about enhancing normal cognition. Superhumanize. I think so many people uh, prefer to stick their head in the sand when they notice something is a little bit off. Yes. And especially when they have a uh, tendency to be fatalistic. Oh, well, if yeah. this is something like Alzheimer's, there's nothing I can do anyhow, so I'll just write it out. But it's really crucial to recognize that nowadays, especially via the type of work you have been doing, something can be done. This is not a, a, a sentence for eternal and slow demise. You get on top of it the earliest you can, and you can either slow it down or even reverse it. So we have to be proactive with this. Um, and something else I think that's really important in, in, your, in your books, you emphasize that part of the reason why the medical field is struggling with Alzheimer's is because they're still very focused on identifying that one cause that explains the disease. Uh, but you say there's many different types of Alzheimer's and that most people um, don't just have one and that their disease has multiple causes. Can you explain to us the different subtypes of Alzheimer's that you have identified? That's such a good point. Yeah. So what happens is what we discovered with 30 years of lab work is that there is a system. So you have a plasticity system in your brain. You're making connections and you're pulling back and you're doing this all the time. And much like someone who gets osteoporosis, what happens? You have cells, osteoblasts that are making bone and osteoclasts that are picking up the bone and they work together to give you nice, strong bones for years. Now, as you get older, your osteoblasts are not working as well. Your osteoclasts are actually doing too much. And so you now get lesser and lesser bone density. You end up with fractures. You end up with osteoporosis. Well, Alzheimer's, although more complicated, it's the same idea. You have a whole set of signals that is making and keeping connections. They are literally synaptoblastic. Then you have a whole set of things that are synaptoclastic, that are pulling back. And when you're young, you have this beautiful balance and you're remembering important things and you're forgetting things like the seventh song that played on the radio on the way to work yesterday that you don't need. So over your lifetime, you keep those important things, how to do your job, how to do calculations, how to drive your car, how to speak the languages, all these sorts of things that you're keeping that are critical. Now, as you get older, if you now lose some of these things, you're now going into this synaptoclastic mode. You don't have enough energy, for example. You don't have enough trophic support. You have too much inflammation. You're on the wrong side. So what we found is you can get that there by different ways. As you indicated, we then subtype these. So type one Alzheimer's is inflammatory. And there are lots of things that can give you systemic inflammation, which of course is also important for cardiovascular disease. And it can be a leaky gut. It can be chronic sinusitis. It can be poor oral dentition. Oral microbiome is huge in this disease. 
It can be an infection from a tick bite, things like a Lyme disease, lots of different things that can give you chronic inflammation. Metabolic syndrome, one of the more common ones. That's type one. Then there's a type two, which is very different. These people don't have a lot of inflammation, but they have reduced support, reduced estradiol, testosterone, progesterone, pregnenolone, thyroid, vitamin D, all these things that you need to make and keep those synapses are reduced. So that's type two or atrophic Alzheimer's disease. And then there's a type 1.5, which is in the middle, which is glycotoxic. These are people who have very significant insulin resistance, a very common problem in the country. And so they have both some inflammation because the glucose literally gloms on to proteins, glycation it's called. And this is, of course, we measure it as hemoglobin A1C, but many, many proteins have that same glomming on, that same non-enzymatic glycation that occurs with hemoglobin. But you also have the insulin resistance, so your insulin doesn't signal as well as it did, so now you have a reduced support. So you have both type 1 and type 2, so we call it type 1.5 or glycotoxic. Then type 3 is toxic, and the toxins come in three different groups. It's the inorganics, mercury, air pollution, things like that. Those of us who were in the California fires have to be careful. We were at increased risk. Number two is organic toxins, things like uh, glyphosate and things like toluene, benzene, formaldehyde. And then number three, third group is biotoxins. So people who are exposed to specific mold species that produce these toxins, which actually damage your brain, damage your immune system. So that's type three toxic. Type four is vascular. Type five is traumatic. So the bottom line is there are many things that can contribute to this change in your plasticity network that ultimately leads to Alzheimer's. But long before it ever leads to Alzheimer's, you have suboptimal cognition. So those are the subtypes. And therefore, we want to address those things for each person. If you think about it, the clinical trials that have been done up till now are trials in which they predetermine a treatment. And it's the same treatment for each person, which makes no sense. It's like saying, we're gonna try to make each company better by replacing one janitor. I mean, wait a minute, some companies need a change in the the C-suite, some need change in where their location is, some need change with specific personnel, the corporate culture, what have you. And so it's the same thing with Alzheimer's. There are many contributors, we need to identify them and we need to address them with what's called precision medicine. Excellent. Thank you for summing that up for us so clearly, Dale. And what you touch upon just in the last part, I think, I believe is that, um, you know, traditionally researchers believe that Alzheimer's is caused by the buildup of a molecule called uh, amyloid uh, on the neurons in our brains and that that leads to the atrophy of our neural tissue. And um, so conventionally, mostly it gets looked at medication that can get rid of this uh, beta amyloid and thinking that that can cure Alzheimer's. So obviously this has not worked despite the billions of dollars and decades of times that have been poured into this. Um, Can you explain to us the role of beta amyloid, please, though? This is such a good point because beta amyloid made a lot of sense as a target for Alzheimer's disease, because no question, when you look in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's, you see these beta amyloid lakes around, and you do see loss of synapses and things like that. Although it had been pointed out years ago, they don't seem to match up perfectly. So something must be wrong. And on the other hand, if you have a situation where you make a lot of extra beta amyloid, you can do this in mice, or you see it in humans with rare genetic mutations, then in fact, you do get Alzheimer's. So it all made perfect sense. You have too much of this, you get, however, what happened was for most of us, the vast majority of us, we're not getting Alzheimer's because we make too much amyloid. It is a response to something. So it's a little bit like saying, you know, amyloid's like a gun. If you're going to go out and find out why someone got killed, it's not just about a gun that went off accidentally. It's about who had the gun, you know, who, who did this. So 
some beautiful work a few years ago by professors Robert Moyer and Rudy Tanzi from Harvard, and they showed that beta amyloid, the stuff that we've all vilified for years, and as you said, the drug companies have spent billions getting rid of, this is actually an antimicrobial peptide. So this is a response to the very insults that you and I just talked about a few minutes ago. If you want the brain to make more amyloid, you can produce inflammation. In fact, amyloid is part of the innate immune system. And it's interesting, you know, where so many, yeah, so many people have died now from COVID-19. Over 500,000 people in the United States have, done, have died from COVID-19. And for perspective, almost 100 times that many of the currently living Americans will die from Alzheimer's. So it's actually a much bigger pandemic than COVID-19. But what happens in COVID-19? You've got a problem. You're all pulling back. You've now, you, we go into recession because everyone's pulling back. And then you have this cytokine storm that people die from. Well, there are a lot of similarities with Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is slower. It is again about the innate immune system. It's not cytokine storm, it's cytokine drizzle. So you have this chronic, mild cytokine production. And part of your innate immune system in Alzheimer's is the A-beta itself. It's the amyloid itself that is trying to kill and deal with the various insults that have actually affected your brain. So what we call Alzheimer's disease is really a protective response making this amyloid because of all these different things. It's because of toxins, because of pathogens, because of changes in your oral microbiome, because of changes in your sinus microbiome, herpes simplex, P. gingivalis, all these sorts of things. And therefore, you want to identify those and address those very things to get the best outcomes. Right, going to the root causes and not just exactly. masking symptoms or getting rid of the amyloid and actually uh, not really doing something good at all for the patient who is suffering. I'm, I'm really interested, Dale, do you see today uh, a prevalence in certain of the types of diabetes that you have not seen decades before? It's a good point. And let me just finish with the amyloid for one second. I should have added that amyloid, therefore, is this thing that is protective against these organisms. So it's a response to the insults. Therefore, when you remove the amyloid, if you've removed all the insults first, you might be okay. But the companies that are removing amyloid are removing it when you've still got the problems present. Uh, and so the, the fact of the matter is you've got to remove the problems first. And by the way, there was a huge announcement a couple of weeks ago uh, from Eli Lilly, where they announced that they used Dunanimab, their antibody that removes amyloid and successfully removed amyloid in a number of patients. And what they found was people didn't get better, people didn't stabilize, but what they did find is it slowed the decline by one third. That announcement led to an increase in the stock value of their company by $20 billion in one day. And that was just slowing the decline. So of course, the goal here is not just to slow the decline, it's to improve people. And that's the idea of going after what's causing it. Now, you mentioned diabetes. Great point. And one of the professors from Brown University pointed out years ago that we should be calling this type 3 diabetes. Now, my argument would be, there's a lot more to this than just type 3 diabetes. But yes, insulin resistance is a very common problem. It is one of the many critical contributors to Alzheimer's disease. So in that sense, you could say that, yes, it's a type 3 diabetes. Um, but I would argue that, yes, there are many other things, and you've got to look at those as well. So certainly with everybody who comes in, we look at their HOMA IR, which is a measurement of their insulin resistance. We look at their fasting glucose. We look at their hemoglobin A1C. We look at their fasting insulin. And actually, if, there's a, if you're suspicious and those three are okay, you can do an oral glucose tolerance test and check insulin with that to see if someone is insulin resistant. Superhumanize. And you also emphasize in your books uh, that ketosis is important. However, your approach to ketosis is uh, different from what many think with regards to the right. ketogenic diet. 
And I'd like for you to elaborate on this. I found it fascinating. Personally, I'm a vegan that you said ketogenesis can be reached through a plant-based diet combined with exercise and fasting. So can you talk a little bit more about how we can achieve ketosis on a mainly plant-based diet? Yeah, this is such an important point. Um, and, you know, we're agnostic. Whatever works to help people with cognitive decline or whatever improves our cognition, that's what we want to use. And if it turns out that eating nothing but steaks all day, every day makes your, your cognition better, hallelujah. So far, though, what's been shown and published, there hasn't, it hasn't been shown that a purely carnivorous diet has the best outcomes with cognition. What has been shown is that more of a Mediterranean diet. And so we're, again, we're trying to drive you toward an optimal neurochemistry for cognition. And it turns out that that has several features. So number one, when you have Alzheimer's, you have a problem. This is an energetic problem, among other things. As I mentioned, less support, more demand with all the inflammation and things like that. So we want to make it so that we bridge that energy gap. And guess what bridges that energy gap best? Ketones. So we start people, you can start on some exogenous ketosis, no problem. But ultimately, you want to, if possible, get into some endogenous ketosis between 1.0 and 4.0 millimolar beta hydroxybutyrate. And you can check it. There's so many great things today, so many wearables and things you can check. You can check your own keto levels easily. You can do it with a breathalyzer from a group called Biosense, or you can do it with, you know, Keto Mojo or Precision Extra, all these great things. Second thing is you need the phytonutrients, which is why you don't want to go just meat. So you need even just simple things like the polyphenols alone have been shown to, with increase in, you have better cognition. So no question, many, many different phytonutrients are critical for best cognition. Third thing, you need high amounts of fiber. We are getting way too little fiber, most of us. You know, the argument has been made that our ancestors back thousands of years ago, probably had something like 100 grams of fiber a day. People are getting by now with 5, 10. So we try to push people to at least 30 grams of fiber per day. And you can follow this for free on you know, chronometer and things like that. I think it's very helpful. By the way, if you follow chronometer, also make sure to get yourself at least 550 milligrams of choline a day, critical for acetylcholine, which is the most important neurotransmitter for memory and is low in people with Alzheimer's disease. So, so that piece, we want to make sure to get enough of the fiber. Fiber is amazing because it helps you with detox. It helps your lipid profile. It helps your glycotoxicity. So you, all these amazing things, it improves your microbiome. It's amazing. So if you were to develop something for Alzheimer's, that would be a pill, you would want fiber as one of the best things for it. Uh, and so then we want fasting. So what we use is we call it KetoFlex 12-3. Get you into ketosis. It's flexitarian. Yeah, you can absolutely be a vegan. You can be a vegetarian or you can be an omnivore. Um, as long as you eat the right things, make sure it's going to be wild caught fish. You don't want the high mercury fish. You don't want the farmed fish. If you're going to have some uh, beef, for example, make sure it's grass-fed. If you're going to have some chicken, make sure it's pastured. For the vegetables, make sure they're organic. Um, if you want to get away without organic, then go back to your, you know, your, your dirty dozen and clean 15 and make sure you do it with the right ones so you won't hurt yourself. These are all critical for best outcomes. And again, it comports beautifully with what's been published about best cognition. So then you want to have fasting. Fasting turns out to be incredibly important. It takes time for autophagy to occur where you're getting rid of your abnormal mitochondria, for example, your damaged proteins, lipids, and carbohydrates, for example. If you, by the way, you take a, an animal and just prevent it from turning over its mitochondria, it will develop Parkinson's. So this is, this is critical for us to continue with autophagy, to continue to get in a state where we have some degree of fasting. It also rests your gut. You know, it is actually quite stressful for your body to have this meal poured onto it. And so having some degree of fasting, we recommend if you're APOE4 negative, 12 to 14 hours of fasting at night. If you're APOE4 positive, 14 to 16 hours, because you're actually better then at absorbing fats. 
And so we call it KetoFlex 12-3. The 12 is the 12 hour minimum fast. And the three is the three hours before you go to bed. So you don't wanna just go to bed right after you finish your dinner. That's actually horrible for you. You're gonna spike your insulin. And by the way, one of the most important things that's been developed in the last few years, we should all be taking advantage of it, is CGM, continuous glucose monitoring. People are shocked to see that when they eat certain things, they skyrocket their glucose, very bad for your brain, increases your risk for Alzheimer's. And at the same time, they then go to bed and they crater their glucose, also very bad for your brain. We have people waking up in the middle of the night, not knowing why until they realize, oh, it's because my glucose is 45. Of course, what does that do? That makes you pour out the adrenaline, also bad for your cardiovascular system and secondarily for your cognition. So all of these things are critical to get best outcomes with your cognition. Outstanding. And I'll make sure to mention a lot of these also in the show notes from the uh, CGM to the chronometer and others that you've mentioned. I'm really glad you also brought up, brought up choline uh, supplements. I personally am a big fan of supplements and what I call optimal nutrition. Uh, natural nutrition is a beautiful thing, but I think for most of us, we don't live in a jungle. We don't grow in a pristine environment. We don't grow our own foods, uh, you know, and um, the kinds of vegetables or other foods we eat nowadays are not comparable to what we had 100 or 200 years ago. And a lot of people don't take that into account when they say, well, I prefer natural nutrition. So for myself, optimal nutrition. And I know you're also a proponent of targeted supplements, which can be adopted to optimize the individual's need in order to support their brain health. What are some of these key supplements we need to look at with regards to this? You already mentioned choline. You know, this is such a good point. Um, and as you indicated, uh, we've in the past had access to food that could take care of all this. And to the extent that you can take care of many of these things with food, of course, that's the first goal. Do as much as you can with food. And that includes things like fermented foods to get you optimal probiotics and optimal prebiotics that you can take as food as well. So many of these things are critical. But as you indicated, and Professor uh, Paul Clayton from Oxford has done a beautiful job over the years showing how poor our soils are and showing how poor our overall food sources are in comparison to those of just a few hundred years ago. So you're right, we are dealing with a suboptimal system. So number one, you get the best you can from your food, from your sleep, from your exercise, from your low stress levels. And certainly there's another one, check your heart rate variability. I do it on my Apple watch. Everyone has different ways they like to do it. So many of these wearables can be helpful to us today. But at the, at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. Most of us are deficient in magnesium, in zinc, in iodine, in choline, in omega-3s. These things are all critical. In potassium is another thing that we're, vitamin D is another. And so what happens, we have high likelihood of death from COVID-19. This has been one of the things, as Jeffrey Bland has pointed out, this is a pandemic within the pandemic. And again, for comparison, uh, about 100 times as many people of the currently living Americans will die from Alzheimer's as have died from COVID-19. Nonetheless, it's a huge problem. And those who are optimal with their vitamin D and with their omega-3s and with their immune systems and with their vascular status, they do much better in general with COVID-19. And they also do much better with Alzheimer's disease. They tend to have a much lower risk. So to supplement, to get these things optimal, of course, in a perfect world, we'd be able to measure you very quickly and simply and say, here are the things you absolutely need. And there have been things where people have tried to do that. There's no perfect way to do it yet. So yes, I like to use a, a set of supplements, again, because you have to remember that people that come to us for cognition changes, either we're going to fix them or go, they're going to die. Um, so it's a very serious problem. Now, of course, that's I'm not talking about the people who come for prevention. I hope that in the future it will be all about prevention because that's much better. And we like to get people as early as possible. So I urge people, please come in as early as possible. We can absolutely reverse people in early stages. The later it is, the harder it is. So when we see people with cognitive decline, we want to do everything people to revert everything we can to reverse. So that includes getting them on optimal neurochemistry. So the supplements I like to use are several. One, I like to use whole coffee fruit extract because it increases BDNF. 
brain-derived neurotrophic factor is low in Alzheimer's, supporting it, it has an anti-Alzheimer's effect. You do support it by exercise, by the way, which increases it by about 10 or 12%. It's a relatively small piece, but it's helpful. No question. In fact, you can actually track very interestingly, when you get ketosis, the ketones enter your brain. They interact with specific histones, which removes them and it removes an inhibition of the production of the BDNF. So you're allowing your BDNF to be produced more during ketosis and with exercise. And then also with whole coffee fruit extract, which actually tends to have a bigger effect on BDNF than the, the uh, ketosis itself and then the exercise itself. The second thing I like to use, omega-3s, of course, I think many, many people recognize. And again, um, there's a lot of work published on this. And there's some beautiful work out of MIT over years looking at what is critical to make and keep synapses, just as we've looked at the critical neuroplasticity. And the point was that it requires, interestingly, citicoline or a form of choline. And in addition, it requires DHA, one of the long chain omega-3s. So, and of course, omega-3s have effects on inflammation. They have effects on productions of resolvins. They have effects on production of synapses. So these are huge. And then I like to, to look at things, vitamin D, another critical one. Most of us are low in that one. Then some nice work also out of MIT, interestingly, from uh, Dr. Guosong Liu over the years showing that magnesium threonate is actually helpful. And he did some nice, published some nice studies showing improvements. Now, people complain and say, you know, supplements, they're, they're over-touted and they don't do what they say they're supposed to do. Yes, there's no question. A lot of people have said, hey, take my one supplement and you're going to be a genius and you'll never get Alzheimer's. It's silly. There has been a lot of false salesmanship. No question. At the same time, Remember, we're trying to do everything possible to give you the best neurochemistry for performance and for inhibition or reversal of cognitive decline. And so therefore, there's no question, anyone who leaves these out, anyone who leaves someone with a suboptimal BDNF or a suboptimal omega-3, and we like to see, you know, omega-6 to 3 ratio down at 2, 3, 4, Many of us have them as 10, 15, 20. You can easily get that checked. We'd also like to see your omega-3 index being up around 10%. Many people, it's 4%, 5%. This is a suboptimal situation. So all of those things are helpful. Um, I also like curcumin. And curcumin is really interesting because it actually binds to the amyloid, binds to the tau. And of course, it itself has a nice anti-inflammatory effect. And again, some beautiful research uh, by Dr. Sally Frouchy and her husband, Dr. Greg Cole, out of UCLA over the years, looking at the importance of curcumin. And there is a whole set, and we've just written another paper recently with Dr. Ramahan Rao, who is an Ayurvedic physician, on all the different things that you can get from these various herbs. So I like things like Bacopa monieri, ashwagandha, um, curcumin is one of them, um, shank pushpi. These things have all been shown for thousands of years to be very helpful for cognition. And the mechanisms are now uh, being uncovered more and more, looking at what actually does it. Even things like saffron can be very, very helpful. So uh, there's another one, Cat's Claw, uh, that Dr. Rudy Tanzi has pushed uh, from Harvard, and I mean, he's absolutely right. It is a has a nice uh, anti-inflammatory effect and also an amyloid-removing effect. Once we get these insults under control, we want to start getting rid of the amyloid. We just don't want to remove it prematurely. Um, so all of those are reasonable supplements. And again, you want to do it with the, depending on what your problem is. For those people who have insulin resistance as a problem, which is not all the people, it's especially the type 1.5 people, then you, there's all sorts of things to use. You can use berberine. You can use cinnamon. Um, you can use 
you know, other sorts of things like, uh, like chromium is another good way. And you want to make sure that the zinc, so zinc is a zinc deficiency. There are about 1 billion people on earth who have zinc deficiency. It's an incredibly common problem. And Professor George Brewer from University of Michigan spent his entire career looking at copper and zinc in people with cognitive decline. And what he showed is that most people with cognitive decline have a bit too much copper and too little zinc. So we should be looking at our zinc levels. We should be, for many people, supplementing. You don't wanna go with too much. It can be damaging at high levels. You don't wanna go over 50 milligrams. For most people, we like to see more like 20 or 25 milligrams of you know, zinc picolinate or one of those preparations of zinc, not so much. But you know, be careful about these very high copper levels that have come from copper piping, he believed, come in some cases from vitamins that have high levels of copper in them, cosmetics. Um, and again, you know, as we talked about toxins earlier for type three, we see it, cosmetics are one of the common contributors. And so there's an app, Think Dirty, that looks at these various cosmetics and tells you which have which and how you can use more appropriate cosmetics that are less toxic. Superhumanize. The Environmental Working Group's website, very, very much. You can look up any type of cosmetics, household cleaners, uh, anything you pretty much use in your daily life, and it will give you very clear insights into what kind of toxins are contained and uh, which kinds of systems in your body they might negatively influence. Um, it's just, you know, know what you're using, know what you're putting in and on your body. I, I also like that you emphasize to, you know, a, a vitamin or a supplement is not necessarily supplement. There are a lot of snake oil salesmen out there. Know your sources, really research it, get the best of the best. Uh, that was a really fascinating and super valuable insight into supplements. Thank you, Dale. Um, some of them, I am, uh, I love myself. I'm a big fan of Ayurveda and also TCM, traditional Chinese medicine and all the wonderful herbs that help us not only relieve symptoms, but heal some of the root causes. And so we spoke about um, ketosis and supplement and of course, diet in general. You in um, 2018, you published cases of about 100, I think it was 100 patients uh, with documented reversal of cognitive decline. Was there anything else in particular that these people really responded to? I know you have the uh, your concept of recode. This is reversal of cognitive decline. So yes, you're absolutely right. We published 100 patients. This was actually with 15 different clinics in physicians that we had trained to do this protocol. Recode is just simply for reversal of cognitive decline. And so you look at all the different things that may be contributing, and then you address those with a precision medicine type of protocol. And absolutely, in addition, and I should mention the ketosis was an important part. The people who do best are typically getting themselves into that 1.0 to 4.0 millimolar uh, beta hydroxybutyrate range. Or if they're using a, a breathalyzer from Biosense, for example, they're getting themselves into over seven ACEs. That's the, we're looking at acetone. And another thing that was important for these people was having some degree of stimulation. So some people like to use what's called violite, which is literally driving your brain to an appropriate frequency. And this is also some very nice work that came out of MIT a number of years ago, looking at driving the brain to specific frequencies. And this has been found again and again and again. Some people like to use uh, a laser approach. Uh, of course, one of the ways to stimulate your brain is simply to do brain training. And this was developed by Professor Mike Mersnick from UC San Francisco years ago. Um, and he's developed something called Brain HQ, which we do use with these people. And they will improve over time when you're doing the right things. You're now making an appropriate brain that's capable of doing the appropriate things. And now you're driving. And it's a little bit like you get yourself eating the right food and then you start working out with weights. Your muscles are going to grow. If you don't do the two together, you're not going to get better muscles. Now, I should add one, a couple other things. Plasmalogens have come up recently as a potential future for these are plasmalogens are a certain type of fats that tend to be quite low in the vast majority of people with Alzheimer's. There's some beautiful work from a biochemist, Dr. Dayan Goodnow, who's shown that these are low in people and that he's in the middle of trials looking at supporting plasmalogens. Another thing is stem cells. And there's some beautiful work now ongoing with stem cells. I do believe that these in the long run are going to be critical for a number of neurodegenerative conditions. But the argument that I make here is 
don't start with that. It's like you're trying to rebuild a house as it's burning down. When you first start, the house is burning down. Put out the fire, get all the things set up. Now do your stem cells after you've gotten everything. I think that's going to be the way to do these in the future. We'll see how it goes. And then plasmapheresis. There's some really interesting work recently out of UC San Francisco showing that plasmapheresis, and this is by Dr. Dobry Kiproff and his colleagues, showing that plasmapheresis seems to improve a number of things um, and literally giving you a slightly younger brain. This idea that that came up in the past that you want to have youth serum, it turns out that you can get virtually all the benefit from just a much simpler way, which is plasmapheresis. Can you explain that to us a little more in depth? I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. So what you're doing is it's plasma exchange. So interestingly, the idea here is you're not just removing the amyloid that's in your blood, and there is some of it in your blood, binding with things like albumin, but you're also removing trophic, well, essentially anti-trophic factors. In other words, the idea is as we age, there are actually factors within our blood that are aging factors. And so years ago, it was shown you can substitute the blood of a young animal and an old animal, and the old animal will be somewhat younger and the young animal will act somewhat older. And so people got all excited about this and said, we're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and we're going to get youthful serum and all this. Well, it turned out that it's the, the major effects of this are simply can be done by plasmapheresis by removing these aging-related factors. We don't know what all these are, but it's clear that they are contributing negatively to our cognition. And what they're showing is plasmapheresis seems to be one way. Now, again, we would argue, do it on the backbone of all the appropriate things. Otherwise, you're not going to get an optimal effect. Uh, you know, it's a little bit like uh, taking every car that comes in that's having problems and filling it up with gas. Yeah, yes, yeah, some of the cars are going to do better because it was gas. A lot of them, other th- it's going to be transmission fluid or it's going to be brake fluid. It's going to be uh, oil or what have you. So you really want to identify and ad- address all those things. But these are some of the other things that are coming. Now, in that 100-person p- paper, we did stimulation. We did brain HQ. Um, we did some of these things. Those people did not have plasmapheresis. They did not have stem cells. So I think that as well as they did, and they all had documented improvement, I think we can do even better. Fantastic. And I think um, plasmapheresis or something similar at the blood transfusions is something, a company that Peter Thiel invested in two, three years ago. I don't recall the name, but it certainly has struck a nerve in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly, as I say, you know, people have been all excited about these, you know, exchanging it for young plasma. And again, it looks like you don't have to go to those lengths to get some very positive outcomes. Good. We don't need to be vampires. (laughs) Exactly. And um, you're currently not in clinical practice. You're working at Apollo, which I find a fascinating endeavor, bringing tech and health together. You're using algorithms amongst other. Can you talk a little bit more about um, how you created Apollo and uh, how you came to work on more of a tech side now? Yeah, it's a good point. So, so I'm, I'm still a professor at UCLA, and, and uh, I've been in academics my entire life. Um, but what happened was we got to the point where we thought, okay, you know, how, how do we make people better from this previously untreatable illness? And we realized that the way medicine is practiced currently is out of date. Uh, you know, Google knows where you shop, and they know where I shop. They know a lot more about us than we would like them to know often. They're using very sophisticated algorithms and large data sets and computation. They're following you around. And this has been great for sales and things like that. Why are we not doing the same sort of thing for people dying of these complex chronic illnesses? So I realized that we really have to get much larger data sets on people to understand. You know, it's, it's interesting to me Um, If you took this problem to an engineer, so let's say you went to an engineer and you said, I have this thing called a human organism. It's a very complicated machine and it's now failing. If something's not working, it's not able to remember things the way it used to. And so the engineer would say to you, okay, uh, Ariane, what what do you have? What what data can you give me? And you say, "Um, I can give you serum, sodium and potassium and a couple other things. The engineer would laugh you out of the room. The engineer would say, look, I want to know all the things that are critical for making this human organism work. 
I need larger data sets. I need to know how the, oh, this whole thing works together. So um, I started interacting with some guys from uh, who originally from Apple. Uh, uh, Lance Kelly and his team, Sho Okada, Bill Lippa, this fantastic group um, uh, of uh, software engineers. And we said, okay, we need to create a solution that, that, that actually addresses this, what I call the complexity gap. There is a huge complexity gap between how complex the human organism is and how complex the data sets are we collect in medicine. We collect these tiny, tiny data sets. That's, you know, that's really out of date. So we need to start bridging that gap. We need to close the complexity gap. And, you know, imagine that you wanted to have a, a computer fly your plane from, you know, London to San Francisco or something. And you said, well, I can only put in one thing. Do I say turn right, turn left? It's like, no, this has to, the complexity of the controls of the algorithm has to be equal to the complexity of the task. Otherwise, your plane's going to crash. It's the same thing in Alzheimer's. The complexity of the solution has to mirror the complexity of the problem. So, you know, we're looking, again, people will laugh at this 10 years from now. We're looking at 150 different variables. It should be 150 million variables. Just your DNA, your, your human genome alone is 3.3 billion base pairs. And that's the simplest thing because that's just unidimensional. We want to know your exposome, your foldome, you know, all these other things. Uh, these, the, your microbiome, your gut, your sign, all these different things. So we need to look at all the things to determine what actually went wrong. And yes, tech is going to be very, very helpful, not to replace doctors, but to be helpers, to be better helpers for the doctors so that the doctor can sit down and in one second, look at your, your output here and say, okay, Here's your genome. Here's what it tells you you're at risk for. Here's your microbiome. Here's your metabolome. Here is your methylome. All these things. I can tell what your approximate biological age is. I can tell why you're having trouble with your cognition. And here's now the best, the computer has, um, has spat out for us the best protocol for you to get optimal improvements. And I think that's going to be adapted to all neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, so, uh, you know, my argument to, when I met with Peter Thiel and his group a few years ago was it's computers are going to solve the neurodegenerative diseases. This is going to be critical going forth. And so this is why we set up Apollo and we've developed software. And one of the things it does is subtype your cognitive decline. You know, why did you get this? Is it more on the inflammatory side? So this is, you know, early days, relatively simple things, but this will progress now and give us better and better outcomes. And this is why Apollo. And I think that you know, this is the way of the future for looking at these complex chronic illnesses. Superhumanize. Dale, there's a question I ask every guest who I have the pleasure talking with on this podcast. And if you would be willing to share with us some of your practices in your life that have benefited you mentally, physically, and or spiritually. Wow. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So great point. And let me start out by saying, you know, I, I'm probably not the right person to ask. I haven't done the best things because you know, when I was an intern, I would be staying up three and four nights in a row, horrible for your physiology. Um, you know, I developed some hypertension, I had a leaky gut, um, just horrible stuff. And I, but I've noticed over the years, things that have improved things for me. So I have switched very much to a KetoFlex 12-3 type of diet. Um, and so, you know, I, I have a largely plant-rich not 100% plants, but plant-rich diet. I typically go 16 hours between finishing dinner and starting the next meal, uh, which is more of a lunchtime meal at that point. Uh, and um, and so I've you know tried to follow my BMI. I'm trying to improve this. So I've definitely some things are definitely wrong. Um, my heart rate variability, I follow every day and I do the breathe approach, which is on the Apple watch and follow very carefully about what gives me better heart rate variability and what gives me lesser heart rate variability. And then along those lines, a few months ago, I had a particularly horrible, you know, back to the tremendous, I mean, I've lived my life with lots and lots of stress, staying up all night for patients uh, for years, and then lots of, you know, grant deadlines, all the craziness, flying, you know, every couple of weeks, flying around the world, 
in that way, the COVID pandemic has allowed much less flying and it's made things much more sane, I think, for many of us. On the other hand, it's brought up the issue of isolation, which has been bad for many people, more depression, more stress. So, and by the way, we've seen the same thing with our cognitive patients. Um, many of them were improving. And then as COVID came in and they weren't around, they started dipping back a little bit. And we had to really push hard to make sure that they would continue uh, in the right direction. So I, I look at heart rate variability. I was under a tremendous amount of stress, staying up till 3 a.m. I had to then get up at four to do an interview. So one hour of sleep, and I actually went into atrial fibrillation. It's the first time in my life where I had a significant cardiac problem. I'm approaching 70 now. Um, so I, it really surprised me. I was like, oh my gosh. So, and, and fortunately, I went in and tried to, I went to the emergency room. I got cardioverted, didn't work. Um, stayed in for 13 hours. And ultimately, it's spontaneously cardioverted. So I'm like, okay, um, I can't do that anymore. I can't be one hour of sleep, screaming and yelling. I was you know, really angry at I like they're expecting this, they're expecting that I was all. So I have to say, I've been very much more um, uh, sanguine, I would say much more relaxed. We're all going to do the best we can. I think my, my Perhaps my very favorite statement is actually from a rabbi uh, who said, uh, you are not expected to complete your life's work within your lifetime. Neither are you excused from it. And I think that's such a great point. We're all here to do the best we can. I'm hoping that before I'm gone from this earth, all of these major neurodegenerative diseases will be preventable and treatable. But if it doesn't happen while I'm alive, then there are brilliant students out there, brilliant young professors who are going to make this happen. So we're all going to do the best we can. And I think hopefully come to a situation where this, and this has been the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. People die of neurodegenerative diseases left and right, and they're horrible diseases. So to see it so that this can be truly rare, that's the goal. Um, and so, you know, I've been trying to improve my diet, trying to improve with exercise, trying to improve with stress management, which is one of my biggest problems, trying to improve with sleep. So I've been checking my own sleep, making sure I get as close to eight hours a night as I can, trying to eat a largely plant-rich diet, mostly organic. I try to have more, I found out that my choline uh, intake was quite low. So I'm actually trying to do more pastured eggs. I also take, uh, I'm, I go back and forth between alpha GPC and citicoline. I take some omega threes, uh, so those sorts of same sorts, uh, same sorts of things we talked about. I make sure I get enough vitamin D, you know, all of those things um, that I find you know very very helpful. And then following myself with my Apple Watch and following myself with various metabolic parameters. As I've said before, as the metabolism goes, so goes the cognition. I have a HEPA filter uh, here in the room, um, which again with the California fires a great thing to have. And I think for most of us, we are breathing suboptimal air and then lots of work in the last few years about air pollution and is a very important risk factor for cognitive decline. By the way, the people who are in the World Trade Center cloud, 13% of them had already developed cognitive decline by 2015. It's an incredibly important risk factor for cognitive decline. So poor air quality. So all of these things are critical. And then the thing that really helps is then, you know, Get the close the circle, find out what your values are, find out what your omega 3 index is, find out your vitamin D, find out your omega 6 to omega 3 ratio, find out your HSCRP. And all of these things are in the book, as you mentioned. And you, as I mentioned earlier, you can just go on my cognoscopy and, and get a cognoscopy. But one way or another, have your doctor do it however you like. Make sure that you are on the right track because these diseases. The advantage we have is we can get to them early. The disadvantage is you don't get symptoms until they're mostly over. 20 years for Alzheimer's between the beginning of the pathophysiology and the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And that's well-documented by PET scans and by cerebrospinal fluid longitudinal analyses. So um, I'm far from doing the right things. I would say both of our daughters and my wife are all better than I am at eating the right things, doing the right things, but I'm trying to learn. Well, you're doing a lot, and this is 
Excellent, excellent advice. Uh, some things I personally am not practicing yet, but I'll make sure to do so uh, because, uh, I mean, Dale, Dr. Bredesen, definitely someone you want to be listening to. And if we're thinking Alzheimer's, um, I mean, what could be worse than losing the most precious things that you have, which are your memory and your mind? Uh, when is your next book coming out, Dale? Again, you said within a few months. It'll be August 17th, coming out from Random House, the same as the group that did before. So first survivors of Alzheimer's, some wonderful, wonderful stories. And each of these seven people who did so beautifully uh, talk about what they actually do. So they talk about the things that worked for them. Outstanding. It is on top of my reading list. And uh, Dale, I am so, so grateful to you giving us uh, your time, your brilliant mind and your insights. Thank you so much for leading the charge in this most important work and coming up with solutions and also giving people not the hope, but the knowledge that the potential is there to prevent or even reverse this disease of Alzheimer's. I, I'm thrilled to have spoken with you and um, I look very much forward to your next book and to keeping in touch. Thank you so much, Ariana. And let's all optimize our cognition. I think it's going to make a huge difference for all of us, not just in the prevention of cognitive decline, but in better cognition for all of us. Better cognition, better world. I'm with you 100%. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Evolution. 